Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. I'm really excited to introduce Ryan Moran to the Philosophy Podcast. Ryan is a head coach at UMBC and um, is a Maryland grad and coached at stops along the way at Naps, at Navy, back at Maryland, and at Loyola before he got the head coaching job. In, in summer 2016, he got hired at UMBC and he's doing great things. Ryan, welcome to the show. So fired up to have you on here. Thanks, Jamie. Pumped to be here. <laughs> The Lacrosse Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 10-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. To learn more or start getting better today, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash academy. So... You're a coach's son and a uh, coach's nephew. Um, why don't we get started um, with, with that? I mean, it's a pretty amazing story for those people who don't know the, the kind of lineage of coaching uh, tree that, that you were born into. Sure thing. So, uh, yeah, Richie Moran is actually uh, my dad's uncle and my great uncle. Um, and obviously had just such tremendous success at Cornell. Um, a lot of my summers involved going up to a quick stick lacrosse camp or vacationing in Ithaca because we have some family there. And then, uh, and then growing up, my dad's been coaching at Chaminade for about 40 years now, I think. So I grew up going to practices, knowing all the guys' names, cheering them on for Chaminade St. Anthony's games. So kind of just two older brothers that played as well. So, uh, I mean, I grew up just with sticking my hand and going to practices and just loving watching practice and coaching and games and stuff. So the Chaminade St. Anthony game, nine overtimes in like 1994. Were you there? I was. My brother was at, my oldest brother was on St. Anthony's, believe it or not, at the time. Was he? I, w- I went to that game. I, I was there. I was there too, Jamie. I was there, and I was probably crying at the end. It was very this offsides call that I still remember. So they just the, the refs were done. It was nine overtimes. And by yeah. the way, like back then, there was three timeouts per half in New York, yeah. and there was a timeout taken in like for every overtime and like literally the guys were blowing timeouts like as soon as they clear the ball and you didn't start with a face off so it would be like <laughs> I know. there was I think there was 43 timeouts in the game when you add up 12 plus four 16 of the regular time and then 27 in the overtimes oh yeah it was I mean for all those timeouts I'd still kept you on the edge of your seat especially. oh yeah that was a heck of a game yeah so um but uh and then you ended up going to play for coach Cottle at at Maryland, um, tell us about that, um, about what that was like. You know, um, actually, I was on the, I was in between. Coach Kyle took over my junior year. So, uh, oh, I was, right. yeah, yeah, I was recruited by Coach Slavkowski and, and Big Man and I think a little bit of Scotty Marr, but Scotty was only there for a year. Um, and, you know, it was, I went on a recruiting trip there. Back then you had recruit, official visits. I, I visited uh, UPenn, kind of went up to Cornell, uh, UMass, that's where my dad played. And, I just felt most comfortable at College Park. There was just, you know, a handful of Long Island guys I already knew. And yeah. Fidel was great. And, um, 
you know, uh, two years there, you know, played a little bit D-Midi and faced off. And then Coach Cottle came in and did a good job teaching me how to shoot a little bit better. <laughs> and I was fortunate enough to play some offense my last two years. So, you know, I was able to do a little bit of everything with a short stick. And, um, you know, I just loved my experience there. It was great. That's awesome. Tell, tell, me, tell us a couple stories about um, Coach Adele and Coach Cottle. Uh, Pig Man was great. He was the master motivator. I mean, you never had a guy that you wanted to play harder for or make happy in a practice setting, let alone a game setting. You know, I felt like everyone when you were on the field was just, you know, you wanted to make sure Biggie was proud of you and Biggie thought you were tough, you know? And I, th yeah. I think that was kind of the identity of a lot of those teams. And, and Coach Cottle was hard on us as well. I mean, I, I loved playing for Coach Cottle. He was great. Um, you know, he, he worked with me a little bit more on um, skill development stuff. Um, which I always liked and I've carried with me into my own coaching. Um, and I, I just appreciated the time and effort he kind of put in, like just on an individual basis with me personally. So I always am in debt uh, to him for that, for sure. Awesome. Yeah. And so the next was um, on to NAPS? Yeah, yeah. I got, uh, I, you know, I got out, I graduated and, you know, I just missed being on the team so much. Like, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to be, on a team and playing games and and I quickly realized well I can't play anymore so what's the next option of being in that environment and and coaching was it um so you know I uh kind of threw my name out there in a couple of jobs Notre Dame or St. John's and and uh, in the Nats position and you know I, I I um just felt like Naps was a good fit at the time for me. I went there and I really enjoyed my time with Coach Mead and Coach Tillman and Coach Goers and those guys were going to be kind of my bosses from afar and gave me an opportunity to do everything. I was the only coach with 25 kids and my job was get them to the academy, keep them happy, get them good grades, and hopefully get them a little bit better at lacrosse. <laughs> so. yeah, awesome. But great experience to be on your own too. I mean, it was like, it's like being that young and being a head coach is actually pretty interesting. Oh yeah, doing doing the kids' laundry, doing, getting their hanging their unit. I mean, you were I was the head coach, the assistant coach, the equipment manager, the dolo, everything. So it was a great sixteen month crash course on, you know, everything you need to do: organizing travel, meals. So uh, really, kind of got my uh, attention that coaching is the least amount you do is coaching. <laughs> so many, so much more other stuff. The dolo, director of lacrosse operations. I hadn't heard of the. Uh, the acronym but i love it and, and and that position was in was actually kind of invented uh by coach gorse and that opened up a door for you to come back to navy and coach division one lacrosse huh? absolutely you know and um i think i was just fortunate um i don't know if i was the most qualified candidate at the time for that job but the timing was right and i knew i was gonna take that opportunity and take that you know stroke of luck and run with it the best i could and my girlfriend who's now my, my wife at the time was was coaching in this area too so kind of things started, planets started aligning a little bit, uh, getting in the state of Maryland. And I mean, I haven't left since uh, 2005. So <laughs> I feel pretty fortunate that I was able to have that opportunity. Yeah, it's pretty, it is pretty solid. Yeah. Uh, what is the, uh, how many years at Navy? Uh, the Naval Academy, three years coaching. And then obviously with the year at NAPS, it was a total of four. Four years. And so what did you, what did you learn from, you know, what was it like to coach for Coach Mead and, and coach with Coach Tillman? It was, it was awesome, <laughs> you know, but I, I think I, as much as I took away from them, I probably took equally as much away from the academy. Like while you were there at that point in time, like me and Coach Tillman and Coach Mead, we were teaching eight classes a week. So eight hours of our, our week was gone. 
you know, we were teaching wrestling, boxing, martial arts, all physical education things. Um, you know, practice every day was at four and, you know, you'd probably have a class at seven, you know, so it was long days and it kind of really instilled a lot of discipline of, you know, logging some long hours and really being in there. And, and then obviously just the type of kids you got to coach was probably the added, a real added benefit of just seeing how selfless and how disciplined they all were. And I was pretty young at the time. I wasn't too far off in age from them and just kind of saying, hey, if these guys are three or four years younger than me and this is what they're doing, I better get my act together. And uh, I think for me, it's almost like the kids set a, a tremendous example of, uh, of how to be and, and what type of person you need to be in order to be successful in whatever you want to do. So. Very cool. And then next stop, Terps. Back yeah. Terps. How did yeah. that come about? Um, coach, Coach. Cottle just called me up, <laughs> and I think I think it was Jeff Shirk who left, if I if I remember correctly. Oh, yeah. Jeff Shirk yeah. left. I think he went to Brown, opened up a uh, position at Maryland. Coach Cottle called me, and um, you know I just obviously as much as I loved the the Naval Academy experience, I was there for four years, and I just felt like if I was I wanted an opportunity to coach in my alma mater, like this this was it, and I might not never get another chance. So I, I wanted to take it and and coach there and. Obviously, Maryland was a great experience, you know, um, two years of Coach Cottle and Coach Tillman was generous enough to keep me on the staff when he took over as well. And, you know, we were able to have some, uh, you know, kind of turn that team from good to great, I think, um, you know, started making it to some Final Fours, I think three Final Fours while I was there, two championship games. Um, a lot of success didn't, didn't break through while I was there, but um, it was a lot of fun, you know, kind of taking that program from one spot to another in the six years that I was there. And obviously always grateful for my opportunity to be able to coach there. Yeah. What, what was it that allowed you guys to take it from good to great? I mean, cause Maryland was, was really good and did make it to a few final fours along the way. And coach Cottle obviously is, is got a yeah. pedigree of winning and is one of the, you know, smartest coaches, but what was it that kind of got Maryland over the top uh, as far as to that next level? I mean, I firmly believe being there for those three years while it happened, um, I always look back on those 2011 seniors, you know, the Ryan Youngs, the Grant Catalinos, the Brian Farrells, um, and I'm sure I'm leaving some guys out right now that certainly deserve attention too, but that whole senior class, Danny Burns, and I just, you just, when, when, you, when you talk about those guys, they were just, you know, kids that you look back on, they're special kids, and they're all together, and I remember you know, we got, we won the ACC championship that year in 2011. It was Coach Tills' first year. And then, you know, we get the seedings and we're on the road to play Carolina in the first round. And you're like, geez, that's one of the first times I've ever seen an ACC champ on the road uh, for a playoff game. And, you know, we're sitting there like, geez, that's going to be a tough first rounder. And I remember Danny Burns being like, this is great. They get a chance to go down there and kick their ass, you know? And I was like, that's just kind of what they were. They, you just got that feeling that they weren't going to be denied. And, they uh, were, were a tough group that I think just were a good fusion between Coach Cottle and Coach Tillman, and they kind of pushed through some doors, uh, even when they, those doors, like, had triple locks on them. You know, I remember the Syracuse quarterfinal game, 6-5. to five. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, and then the Duke, the Duke semifinal game was 9-4. to four. And, you know, I mean, we stumbled in the championship game. I, I usually look back a lot with regret there. I don't know if I had the team prepared well enough for that zone. And, you know, I maybe – Was that against again? Against Virginia? Virginia? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they ran man-to-man -man two times in the first quarter. We scored both, and then they went to zone for the rest of the game. And, you know, Adam Gilman was great in there, and they had two yeah. short sticks on the uh, on those wings that they could really play a square. 
Yeah. And uh, now first, like, really patrol the inside. Like, they were built to be a really good zone team. Um, and we just couldn't crack it that day. So I feel bad for that 2011 group. But they did a lot of great things, I think, in terms of paving the way to a lot of the future successes that Maryland's been able to have since there with Coach Tills, for sure. It was pretty amazing that championship, too, because, I mean, Virginia was – they weren't even really having a great season at all. They were having incredible ups and downs on and off the fields. I actually was in the booth for their Bucknell game, and they shouldn't have even made it past that game. <laughs> they were they were like literally dead in the water, and and somehow miraculously Steele put the team on his back, and they got lucky with a couple of calls. And next thing you know, they're onto a championship. But yeah. yeah, but that was I remember that. I just happened to watch that game recently with Dom because we were did a little webinar on his zone defense. Of course, he was saying that he wasn't playing you square. He was forcing down the alley. Uh, well, they, not so much square. They just got a piece at you. They, they shrunk the field, so they always get yeah, their hands on. You know, and, um, and they, would, they would rotate into you and then fire out at X and force you to really have to come back to where the ball came from. And, you know, it was just – and, and, again, like, no one was really running zone. You know what I'm saying? Like, people do it a lot now. Like, they kind of – we're like, I remember we scored. I mean, we played them in the football team in the, in the regular season and probably beat them by eight goals. And they, yeah. they couldn't defend the big little. And right after that game, they're like, all right, we're going to zone. They started playing zone a lot more. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, to their credit, though, their coaches, that's why they're Hall of Famers, Coach Van and, and yeah. uh, Johnny Walker was on that staff and obviously Coach Starjan. You know, they figured it out, you know, and that's part of the season. Like, you know, that's probably their culture shining through. Like, hey, we're going to keep on getting beat down, but they still stayed up and still stayed in the fight, and good things usually can happen if you're able to do that. So then you joined – you were there for uh, – at Maryland for six years and then um, made a move to Loyola, a one-year stop. But what was that like? Uh, it was two two years, two years. Yeah, uh, the, the first year uh, learned a pretty valuable lesson that I've taken on with me. Uh, I don't think I'll ever coach in the morning in the spring. That um, we did that in 2015, and just didn't work out well. You know, I think it's tough nowadays to get these kids to go to bed early enough, and you know, and, and proper nutrition in the morning. And I, so, I think some teams can do it. For for us that year, it wasn't a good mix, and uh, I think it was a pretty kind of underachieving team, unfortunately, but I, it was great. I mean, obviously working with Coach Toomey and Coach Dwan has been, was an awesome experience for two years in Coach Vakeness. Yeah. And then 2016, uh, Pat Spencer arrives on campus and things got a little different. Um, and then we practiced in the afternoon. Um, <laughs> so, um, so that was a great year. We were able to make it to the Final Four with Loyola. <laughs> and um, we ran into a buzzsaw of Carolina. Um, yeah. This quarter was a, it was a tough first quarter. I mean, the other three were – we're pretty good and pretty competitive and yeah. we made a game of it late but that first quarter it felt like nothing could really go really well and I'd never seen a 15 minutes of better lacrosse played from a team than Carolina on that day yeah you know? totally but I mean I, I honestly if you didn't look at that first quarter you just kind of look at the plays that you guys were making throughout I mean you actually made a lot of plays yeah, we played well offensively. Um, I mean, again, I, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, just looking at it efficiently-wise. We scored on over half the possessions we had for sure. You know, it's just we didn't have a lot of possessions in that first quarter. They were so athletic off the wing. And one adjustment we made at halftime was, listen, we're not, we're not even playing our omitties. We're not getting the ball. Let's just put, like, Sherlock. Let's put Romar. Let's put uh, Albrecht. Let's just put them on the wing. So if it's a loose ball, we got really athletic guys that can match them. And that was – the second half adjustment and we outfaced off them in the second half. And like, I kind of wish would have had the foresight to maybe think of that earlier. You know, I thought we were pretty good off the wing the whole year, but they were a little bit different level of athlete that you just yeah. didn't see on film until you were on field level with them. So. Yeah. 
And Pat Spencer as a freshman, um, I've watched that game a couple times actually since, you know, since that game, like in the last year or two. Just watching Pat Spencer, the way you, you, you put him out top sometimes, you move him around to different spots. Just during that whole playoff run, I mean, dominating whoever it was who was guarding him from Duke, who was a pretty good defenseman, if I recall. Yeah. And then just the way he just had this poise, an, another level of fluency in the game. I mean, how do you describe that? Um, he's, he's a generational talent, that's for sure. I mean, fortunate enough to have one year with him. Um, that, that year, too, I felt like was, again, one of my better years of coaching. I just felt like I'd gotten really comfortable as a coordinator. I've really found my voice on the field. Uh, Coach Toomey, I thought, did a really good job of creating roles for staff and clearly knowing what your role was. And mine was, hey, you score goals for us and you recruit good players and, and do the film and everything else we'll take care of. And so it really kind of narrowed my focus on doing a good job at, at what I was doing. And uh, when you have good players that are bought in and then you have one player like Pat, you know, the creativity level goes through the roof. You can, you know, you can definitely change who you are week to week. And I felt like we were able to do that from the middle of March all the way to May. Like we kind of showed different things, you know, different for like different, I mean, similar concepts out of different formations and putting, putting pieces uh, that, on the other team and, and places where I felt like they'd be really uncomfortable having to defend. And, and I've kind of taken that philosophy into recruiting and I've taken that philosophy into, into coaching offense now as well. Love it. Well, let's transition right into, um, into uh, talking about UMBC. Um, give us the uh, state of the union. <laughs> well, we're going into year four, you know, I feel like in the, the first three years I've been blessed with great assistance. Uh, Coach Kester, I think does as fine a job as any guy out there. Coach Bucci, I got him from Coach Warren at Georgetown, and he's been with me for four years now. Um, we recently just added Craig Chick as a volunteer assistant. Um, he's from Lehigh. So I just feel like – and the guys before, Neil Hutchinson and, and Billy O'Hara was another volunteer last year who's now at VMI. I feel like I just had really great assistance, and I think that's part of the key to a puzzle. You know, I think if you look at some guys, first-time head coaches have struggled, you see a lot of turnover in the coaching staff early on. I mean, you know it better than anyone. I mean, it's a hard enough job being a head coach and then also having to constantly retrain other people while you're still trying to figure out if you're totally trained yourself just creates a lot of work. You know? So the fact that I've had consistency with assistance, I think, has been probably the most pivotal key to our success. And, yeah, we've been able to, I think, do a good job off the field, which has really led to a lot of on-the-field success, and that's what we talk to our guys about. You know, we were a team whose GPA was not very strong when I took over, and we've never been below a 3-3 since I've been here, which proud of the guys for that. Um, and, and I think they really try and buy, buy in into a lot of the cultural things that we talk about in, in terms of being a standard, choosing that hard right choice versus that easy wrong, and, and living, that, living that culture and that blueprint. And I firmly believe when you do that, when things get tough on the field, the culture will take over more so than the talent. And I think that's kind of how we've had our success to date. And now I'm hoping that through recruiting, we can fuse talent with that culture and kind of hopefully take a next step from not just maybe winning our conference to maybe winning a, a first round game, getting into that quarterfinal game. That's what we're hoping for. And that's what we're hoping to improve to. Um, and, you know, we just got to keep doing the things that we're doing and hopefully that happens. Speaking yeah. of culture, how do you specifically, what are some of the things that you do to try to, to build the culture and, and, and build upon this blueprint. And is there actually a blueprint? You actually have a plan, you know, it's listed, yeah. people know what they see it. 
Yeah, we give them blueprint tests. You know, it has foundational components, methods, and results, kind of like an outline for our behaviors. And I, and I say to our guys, here's the deal. Like, this is, is going to be a masterpiece at the end. So each action you have, whatever individual action you do, is going to be a piece of this puzzle, whether it's deciding to go to class and sitting in the front, which will be a really crystal clear, clean piece, or, you know, skipping a class or sitting in the back and being on your computer. That will be like a not shiny piece and dull. So if we can have all these shiny, clean cut pieces towards the end, they're going to put the, come together and it's going to look really good. But it's not just the on the field stuff. For us, it's we want to try and be elite in the 22 hours off the field. And I, and I feel like if you, you kind of keep that switch turned on, when you get on, it's just like that's just who you are. Um, so as coaches – there's only three of us. I mean, I, I, talk, I joke about this. We're kind of outmanned, and you know that from a yeah. Division One standpoint. Um, it'd be nice to be like college basketball where you got eight coaches for like maybe 13 kids. That's a world I wish I lived in. But um, we, we really focus on developing leadership internally and having like um, good culture that way where, you know, we utilize the parts that we trust to instill the culture and instill those standards with us. Uh, and hopefully, you know, constant voices and constant emphasis are going to – and then it always goes back to recruiting too, recruiting your solutions and not your problems. You know, I try to recruit kids that are all cut from the same cloth so you can stitch them together pretty well. You know, like if you have two pieces of denim, you're going to stitch it. If you got a piece of denim and silk, it ain't going to stay together. So multi-sport kids, kids that uh, come in academically competitive, kids that come from winning programs, kids that come in with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder, we look for all those kids. And when you put them together – they're all kind of unified and being the same person and going towards the same direction you want them to. So. How do you empower, you know, to, how do you develop leadership by empowering leadership specifically in your program? Well, we meet with them weekly and we have them create an agenda for us. Like, so it's not like the coaching staff spoon feeding them. Here's what we need to talk about. They, they talk to us, you know, and we get, we give them a little bit of a, a template of here's what you need to go down. But, you know, we have a council of seven guys on it, varying from sophomore to senior year. They come prepared, and it kind of makes them have to introspectively look at the team and see what are we doing well, what are we not doing well, what's going on off the field that maybe the coaches need to be alert, alerted to, and what are some potential maybe things that might be a problem that we can jump in front of now and, and, and get on top of. Um, so just gives a constant voice for them and for the team. And it also kind of connects the dots a little bit for the staff with, hey, we're not with these guys all the time, but we are also responsible for almost all their actions. So we better make, make sure we do a good job of knowing who they are. How about on the field, empowering leadership and empowering, how, you know, to, if you can get your players to quality control rather than having the coaches be the ones to quality control everything, you, you're, you're clearly going to have that kind of on-field culture that leads to wins because it leads to communication and, and you know, real engagement in what you're trying to do. How, how do you do that? Well, I, I stole an idea from Coach K um, and Coach Kester, not, not, not Coach K. Um, Coach K, Coach Kester. Uh, the first two years, he really in, embraced on uh, – you know, getting with the like the leaders within the defense and then having them give them opportunities to coach on the field, you know. And as said, there's got to be that trust there, though, that you know that their message is going to be the same as you. And I don't know if I was just quite there yet offensively because uh, I was working with Neil um, that first year and trying to groom Coach Hutch, you know, to, to, to coach the offense a little bit. So I was kind of a little bit separated from it. And then last year I had an opportunity to coach the offense again. 
and started really getting with some of the experienced guys and getting with them in small pods and really making sure our brain, we were sharing the same brain with what we were looking to do. And then I empowered them in pre-practice work a lot to work with the other guys. So their voice was being heard. And it's not always about their voice, but their actions always were elite and, and, and of, a le- of a leader. And then we were able to kind of fuse that intelligence so they felt confident enough to, to, to lead and, and coach themselves. Um, and I really felt like that was a good next step yeah. in terms of them feeling ownership. And when you own it, you want to make sure it looks great. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and I think that was a key, to, a really good key to some of the, the offense that we have is I want them to feel like it's theirs and it's a reflection of who they are. It's, it's not so much mine. It's, it's theirs. They're the ones out there. So. Yeah. Very cool. Love it. So thoughtful. And there's, it's amazing how much of the job is culture. I mean, honestly, like if it was just lacrosse, it would be, you know, easy. You know, oh, yeah. and uh, that's that's what wins you guys games. And, and it probably came through at the end of the year last year when you guys turn your season around and won your conference championship and went to the NCAA tournament and played some great lacrosse at the end of the year. Would you say that had so much to do with like culture more so than lacrosse? It was everything. I mean, I remember the beginning. So I, for, I don't know if you know this, but um, I'll tell you, I mean, we we had four close defensemen go down to season ending injuries before even March last year. Um, we, we took two short stick. We, we took a kid who played offensive midi his sophomore year, who we moved to D midi his junior year and gave him a pole and played close defenses senior year. Like we, like we, we didn't have the depth we, you know, we had, and to coach K's credit, I mean, what he was able to do in terms of developing those kids in such a short time and putting them in positions to be successful was great. But we had a starting goalie go out. We had four, four close defensemen get out. We were robbing from Peter to pay Paul with short sticks to move down. And all the while, you know, it, before any of those injuries, I remember thinking to myself, like, this is our year. Like, we got a good, great group. And if they do things the right way, we should win. And I never really doubted that the whole year. Even when injuries happened, I was like, we still have a great group who do things the right way and are staying positive. And even when things were pretty bleak and just getting, you know, butt kicked by high point and driving back six hours, kind of like, Ugh, what's going on here? You know, I still believed in the guys. And I think the guys believed in the staff. And we had a little bit of a shimmer of hope towards that last week of the season, that last weekend of our regular season where we needed to win. And I felt like things really turned culturally, like belief wise. And then after that, usually it's like one of those instances, like everything from after that kind of got a little easier and you kind of knew we were going in the right direction and that faith and belief and trust kind of all connected at the right time. Yeah. It's awesome. It's magic when it happens. And it's, oh, yeah. you know, it's, great. it's, really, it's awesome. The Phil Acrosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. Let's talk a little bit about um, your philosophies on player development. Um, I'm really interested to hear about, you know, how you like to develop your players. And we'll talk more offensively than defensively. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you can share a little bit about Coach K's defensive philosophies a little bit later. <laughs> I'll try. He's, uh, um, just it starts with recruiting, you know. And I, I, when I recruit attackmen, I try to make sure I'm recruiting kids that are well-rounded, you know, that um, – Looked at not shying away from being inside, not shying away from feeding, not shying away from dodging, you know, and, 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 and that's pretty tough, but I look for guys that 
you know, can do a little bit of everything because philosophically I want to be able to put them in any position where I can exploit a defense's like weakness. You know, if I feel like a guy wants to be on the perimeter, well, I'm going to, I got to make sure if he's going to cover my guy, who's maybe my one, my best Dodger, that that Dodger, I can also put inside to start and make him go from an on-ball guy below GL lead and now a sliding decision guy, which you might not want to do as much. So from an attack position, I'm constantly looking for guys that are, are well-rounded and they're within all their skill sets, very two-handed, and you feel comfortable really putting anywhere on the field. Uh, and, and midfield is not too dissimilar, just kind of in the flip side of it. Like, you know, um, athletic guys that you, you trust who can play back, maybe get back on some defense. That's where I think a lot of that multi-sport within the recruiting helps. But I also love doing stuff below goal line. And I love doing, you know, so I want to be able to make sure guys feel comfortable that I can develop them to, hey, carry that dodge below Gioli and set yourself up into an invert. Be able to pass down, pick down, and slip to X to maybe reattack and do stuff around that crease line. So... Really, I mean, philosophically, I'm looking to develop the player to be able to attack from anywhere. And I feel like when you have multi-sport kids and kids that play different sports, like they're comfortable doing different things instead of just living in that alley or just living at X or just living inside or living as that wing shooter. You know, I, I just don't want to be as scoutable when you have guys like that where you can just take away their strength and then they kind of hide and there's nothing much more you can do with them. It's such an interesting point. I, I see this all the time with with for years, you know, where it's like, you know, Mike, you know, you see a lot of coaches and in particular dad coaches and they're like, my son's an X guy. And all they do is play behind the net the whole time. And oh it's God. great, except for the fact that they're, they're not really comfortable on the wing and they're not really comfortable off the ball. And they're not, you know, they've never played midfield. And honestly, it seems like, you know, from what you're saying is you want players that, you know, middies that can play like attackmen and attackmen that to a certain degree, they can play like a midi, obviously within the scope of your, skills your strengths as an athlete but but to be able to play on the wing to be able to play behind as maybe as an attackman um, it sounds like you want that you know versatility yeah and when we go into like in, installing our offenses and stuff I'll, I'll always say your job is to know every spot I want to be able to plug and play mix and match take advantage of it of uh, mismatches that I feel like we have versus a team uh, also obviously with you never know who might get injured or what might happen yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I like, I usually make the reference to kind of give them a little bit of perspective. I go like, if you ever looked at the playbooks of some college football teams and how much they have to know, and they're division one athletes with the same schedules as you guys, I'm really not asking that much for you to know six different spots on the field. <laughs> you know, come on. So we, uh, we try to, again, having the guys coach each other, we do offensive tests, you know, um, where they, oh, yeah, like what? I'll make a test. And show me this oh like a test like yeah, show me yeah. this formation just you know describe to me this drill what what are your reads if you're in this spot where what should you be looking at um or what should be open you know um, that's awesome what are some different yeah, ways work. To, yeah yeah it's just what are some different ways the defense can cover this you know um or in particular our defense starting to get them to think hey here's how things are defended what will work versus it so you said i would like to have attackmen that are very two-handed um, but you probably have some Canadians that are zero two-handedness. I, I mean, um, in, this, in the fact that if you're one-handed, you still can get things done. You know, like we have a kid yeah. named Brett McIntyre right now. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, you can watch the film. He's a righty. He's, and I don't care if he cuts that left pipe with the stick in his right hand. He's still right. going to figure out a way to finish yeah. it. Yeah. So, like, again, like, I, I, I also, like, uh, I'll let anyone have the opportunity to prove to me they can do something um, 
a way that they want to do it as long as it's effective. Like a Grand Catalina was a great example. Like, you know, I, I went into Maryland being like, oh, overhand this all the time. And, and I'm like, well, Grant can kind of shoot any way he wants because Grant scores. And, and the same thing with Travis. And, you know, it would be like Travis Reed. And I'd be like, so I'm not going to really – I mean, if I recruit you and you, you can do something that I see no one else doing on the field, I'm not going to come in here and say, okay, well, now, Brett, I've watched you score over 400 goals in indoor and just keeping it in your right hand and saying, well, now, you're not a, now you need to cut left like because I'm the tyrant. No, it's like you get it done, you can get it done. Uh, so I guess it's more of being able to play different spots of the field, sure. you know, not necessarily yeah. have to be two-handed. No, I mean, it's nice to have a few guys that are two-handed. There's no question, but yeah. Um, but yeah, um, I've been really interested in the you know as coaches we always talk about decision making, and and yet a lot of times when you watch you know I've been to a ton of practices, you know of men's, women's, high school, um, college, Division One, you know boys, girls, box, and I always try to look at how they develop decision making because. Mm -hmm your ability to see what's happening around you and perceive how the defense is playing you and process what it is that's happening around you and then making decisions from there. And there's usually like, there's so much that you have to process, right? There's like, you've got, how's your man playing? How's the defense playing? you? Where are your teammates talking to you? What are you running? What are your, how much time in the shot clock? Like all of these things happening. And then you have to make decisions. And those decisions could be like instantaneous, like dodge and then roll back and then manipulate, you know, then you're manipulating slides and you're trying to decide whether you're going to move it, all this. And then you got to execute those decisions with techniques. But really it's the processing and the decision-making that is probably definitely the most difficult and most important piece of this. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think about that and develop decision-making? Um, said everything I agree with um you know it, it, it's the one thing to know where you should the ball should be going a little bit you know there's obviously some gray but there's one thing to have an idea of where it should go but then there's also the the art of getting it there with the skill technique that you need to develop so again you hit on it's twofold but if you if you talk about it from a schematic standpoint um I, I am of the the teaching methodology that you listen to your adjacent players and you see through the inside and out all while you should be able to attack the goal so like so we, don't, we listen we listen to our adjacent players so i don't really look for them if they if, if someone adjacent is wide open then we have terminology that once you hear that you throw them the ball um so like you take those two guys out right away so and you were the ball carrier so now you're the third guy so now there's three guys you need to be looking for and you know in any capacity you can have one of those guys be inside or two of those guys being inside and then another person kind of being a skip or two people being a skip so you're kind of having that scope of where you know you should be looking at but all the while, you need to have that aggressiveness to attack the goal to create some pressure. So right off the bat, you kind of have an idea of where you might go with the ball if you feed it. Yeah. And you might – and if someone adjacent's, you know, calling a blind double or someone's coming showing down heavy too much, then you, then you listen and then abort whatever you're doing based on someone else communicating and your trust within that communication. Um, so that's like kind of a little bit philosophically of how I coach offense for our guys to be able to play fast and know what they're looking for. And then it comes down to – the skill set of actually doing something with the ball while you have these highly aggressive, super talented defensemen trying to get to your hands all the time. So there's all these skill techniques of, okay, it's one thing to know that inside location's open, but if you don't know how to, to, to step away properly or, you know, free your hands properly to get a ball there, it doesn't really matter. Um, so a lot of the small part stuff we do is built around um, either attacking the goal or knowing or good technique on moving the ball or feeding the ball. 
So, so you're looking through your man yep. and you're reading slides mm -hmm. and skips. I, and I usually try to run offense that, you know, forces a defense to defend it maybe one of two ways, you know, I mean, like, and we'll watch the film and say, Hey, listen, they haven't slid a just Jason the whole year. We're able to get leverage from this spot. They're going to come from here. And here's the two things that are probably going to be open for you. Mm -hmm. And if you're looking for it, and, and we're hunting it off ball too, those things become a lot easier to make that read instead of like, oh, now that's open. It's like, well, we were kind of anticipating it to be open based on some of the, the, the pre-work we did before. The interesting thing about decision-making is that sometimes it comes, good or bad decision-making can come from good or bad processing, you know, and, and, but also it can just come from bad decision-making or no decision can be a bad decision, right? And that can become from a lack of confidence and that's like this really like fine line. And I know if you had an answer for this one, you know, you know, it would, you, you could bottle it and sell it, but you know, how do you help with decision-making as it relates to, the, to, to being decisive um, and having the confidence to use your skills? Because the reason why I say it is because so many times we work on stuff and it's like, man, this guy, why is it that this, you know, that Brett McIntyre has the confidence to pop a BTB feed to somebody, whereas somebody else doesn't, and he's making the same decision, but he's making a different skill decision. And a lot of it has to do with your confidence and your ability to make that. Again, I'm not going to try and sound overly philosophical with this, but I think confidence is somewhat of a thing that is accrued in time, but at its like infancy, it starts with little victories you like if you're at a poker table knowing when to fold knowing when to go all in so like you're accruing chips throughout the whole duration of your period there so like Brett McIntyre is his third year he's got a lot of chips so he knows he can maybe bet a little bit with a behind the back that he feels comfortable doing whereas someone in his freshman year first you know first going a three on two throwing a BTB and hitting the goalie in the uh, chest which did happen this year <laughs> uh, Nick you can't do that <laughs> you know that yet yet um, but I, I mean again I I've tried to be you know I don't want to get generationally but I just feel like offensively kids respond a little bit better to film with watching film with them you know a little bit more you know hard on them with the skill stuff to, to have them you know, there's a the time to be hard on them for me is like in positional work when we're working on getting better you coach them hard there but then when decisions start coming in with an early offense or with settled offense they mess up like screaming at them probably ain't going to fix that you know what didn't you do right talking clearly communicating more like more likely will so Accruing those, accruing those chips to, to gain confidence. So much of it, when I kind of look at it, is, is you accrue chips. It, it, whether you're making mistakes or making positive plays, you mm -hmm. kind of accrue chips through experience, and you actually accrue them through decision-making reps, yeah. which is why I, I've, heard it's, I've heard it stated, and it made me think of this, you know, like, honestly, the guy Lax Film Room said this to me one time. He goes – you could argue that anything you're doing that just does not involve decision-making is, you could say, is a waste of time, <laughs> which is so amazing because there's so many things that we do, whether it's shooting on no goalie yeah. or whether it's a shooting drill or a passing drill or stick work drill. I'm not so sure that I go all the way in with that because I think there's a place to do some things, but, but it made me think because it's an opportunity cost. It's not that what you're doing is like not going to make you sharper. It's more that the opportunity cost of not making decisions is going to slow down your development because making decisions is the entire game and reading it and 
having the confidence to make those decisions under structure, guys look awesome. They can hit a corner. They can make any pass you ask them to do. They literally can get to the point where they can do anything that you've taught them, except when it gets into a game and you're like, well, man, if we just did in the game what we did in practice. Well, I'll, I'll fire it back at you because um, I, I have my own answer. But, like, I also think – I'm not really firing it back. I'm kind of telling you. <laughs> I'm, like, bracing for it. I'm ready. Um, was there ever a moment as a player where you had some high level of success where from that moment on you were like, you know what, I can do this? Like, and for me, at every stop along the way as an athlete, I can look back on something I did on the field that was successful. And then from there forward, everything else just seemed a lot easier. And I felt just so much more comfortable. And I don't know why, but I, for at least me as an athlete, as a player, it, it took, I think it takes these, some of these pivotal moments of that, aha, I, I can do this. I am good enough to be here and do this. And I think, unfortunately, that, that isn't a, a set timeline. And some people maybe never even get it. But yeah. it, some people do. And when you do, like, everything's different. Like, I know for, like, Brett McIntyre last year, certainly, you know, kid in and out of injuries for two years. And then he, you know, he comes in off the bench and has three goals versus Richmond. And then from there on in, I don't think there was a game he didn't get a hat trick, you know. So it's just that moment. And um, yeah, it just – it happens. And then all of a sudden everything else is easier. Yeah. So, it is magical. And I, I, when you say that, I can, I can think back to times in different sports – Mm-hmm. Which, uh, for whatever reason, I just turned a page into being yep. a better player and more confident and just, you know, mm-hmm. not sure I can verbalize exactly what it was or the day, but I remember the general time for sure yeah. in high school and college and in different sports. Um, but it is, it's all really, really interesting stuff. Um, let's talk a little bit about what, about your offensive philosophy. Um, what do you guys like generally like, like to, what do you like to run and why are you like an alley dodger, wing dodger? You say you like to dodge from behind the net. No, you don't have to give away your whole playbook, but more just generally, um, love to hear your philosophies on that. I, you know, week in and week out, I, I like to be able to look at what the other team isn't good at and put us in a position to attack that a lot until they prove they can defend it. Um, so I'm not so much of the mindset of, entirely oh it's all about us we do this they got to respond to us I kind of like the unknown of when you play us like there's going to be some things that we haven't shown and you're going to better be able to identify that in the in the flow of the game which I think is hard you know we don't have coordinators up in the box watching getting pictures getting film like you got to see it live and then and then formulate an answer for something that you didn't practice the whole week and some of that can be things that we formations that we run with guys being in different spots from weeks before uh, so, you know, like you have a guy ready to defend something because he's guarding this guy and he's always there. And then all of a sudden, boom, like Pat Spencer, he's playing in the top 400 spot in front of the goal. And you're like, all right, well, didn't see this coming. Um, so uh, I like doing that. And, and with that, you know, you have to I, – I, I really like to use the term of just like read and react lacrosse. Like if you have the ball, I want you to have feel like you have the opportunity to attack the goal in any capacity, whether it's back from where it came from, whether it's opposite. And everyone else around you needs to react to that and needs to react by, by utilizing our communication and giving you guys tools to react, off-ball tools of things that you can do. And anything, and I'd like to tell our guys, I feel like anything will work as long as it's, as long as it's communicated and we're um, reacting to what's going, where the ball is at, at that point in time. So it doesn't look as scoutable, doesn't look as scripted, and it's, it's more of a labor of love and, and, and you know, you're going to get out of it what you put into it. And 
you hope in, in, in March and April, it's looking a heck of a lot better than maybe October's film today. The, uh, the late great Dave Huntley um, used, created a, with his analytics guy, with Atlanta Blaze, studied like 10,000, I think, I don't know, I think it was like 10,000 or 15,000 shots from the MLL in 2015 and 2016. And they came up with some findings that I'm not sure they, uh, <clears throat> the sample size or everything was, was uh, you know, enough to, to say this is always true, but they came up with some, some efficiencies that were interesting. Um, one being, uh, we already know, assisted goals have higher shooting percentages. Uh, your stick to the middle has a higher shooting percentage every time. Um, Two-man game has a higher percentage uh, of efficiency than isolation. Um, in order, wings behind top as far as efficiencies for where to dodge from. How do these sort of things fit into your philosophies? For sure, middle of the field. Um, yeah, um, definitely. I, I wouldn't, I, again, uh, stick to the middle. I think if you're, if you're going to shoot, like if I was in like a, a step down for a right hand and the goal was like the there, I'm okay with that as long as you're not dropping it a little bit more. But yeah. again, if you prove you can score that. So I'm not so much of bought into stick on the middle, but middle of the field, two man, and then um, assisted. Like those three are 100% principles within what we're trying to do. I want as many assisted goals as I can get. I want to at least challenge the middle every time we can, because even if they take it away really well, it's going to only open up a better opportunity maybe going down. And again, isolation. I will. I would. I don't mind isolating dodges yeah. in the top in the top center, nice and high with nice long run. I think that's the one spot where maybe that you might be better off than a two man. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, two man below goal line and, and two man at goal line extended. Um, and I'm not so anti the wing, but I also don't necessarily have recruited maybe the right type of kids to be completely, you know, wing stuff. But I, I got fast enough kids where I can speed dodge and, and do a little bit of smart shifting within my picking to create some confusion. So all those things I 100% agree with you, three out of those four. So Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the stick to the middle, um, it, you're taking care of that because you're getting to the middle. Yeah, true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's like, it's not like you can't score with your stick to the outside, but if you know, but you know that you'd probably rather have, a, you're not putting your lefty on the wrong side on wing on the man up either. I, I wouldn't mind seeing the stat of how many times you first dodge shot actually score. I, I would think that would be in the single digits percentage wise. And that's something we talk about, like, you know, you got to stir the drink a little bit and our defenses are way too good to, to you know you're just going to dodge some guy and, and get a shot and score the goalie's keen in on it the whole time so I think like obviously no first odd shots and getting that goalie to rotate a couple of times two or three times throughout a throughout a possession I, I, I like that too I mean like I like wearing teams down I, I will usually use the analogy of a, a boxing match you got that 80 seconds whatever it may be keep throwing those jabs 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 wait for them to give you the cross and then even if they don't well, now they got a clear tired, and that's something polls sometimes don't like doing, you know. So then we turn that riding button on. So, again, just making, you know, pass counts. I actually did something three years ago where I counted the amount of passes we had in the possession. And when we had over 25 passes, usually it resulted with a high-quality shot. Now, with it, I never took it to the next level of actually scoring or not. I yeah. just want to see, can I generate a good shot? For sure. I love the idea of pass counts. I think that's really, I think that's really smart. In soccer, they, they count passes all the time. I mean, with a shot clock, a pass count is probably more applicable than pre-shot clock where you might just spin it. You know, I usually don't pay attention to that until you, you know, your pass count once you start actually dodging and carrying and moving mm -hmm. it. Um, 
The number of dodges, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, who said this recently? Uh, that I, they said, I don't judge, you know, playing fast by how many passes you make, by rather, I judge it by how many dodges you make. Sure. Uh, which dodging, is life, dodging lifeline. Usually, like, when we're evaluating, like, is this good offense or not, it's one stick work, and your, your, your pass count will give you if your stick work's good or not. You yep. get up to 20, that means you're not dropping it. That's positive. And then dodging lifeline, like, you know, I mean, th around a three-second dodging lifeline. Like, if you can't run by someone, get left leverage, hands-free within three to four seconds, then you're moving it on, and then you're re then you're reacting to the next guy who's attacking the goal. So again, dodge count. I've never thought of that, but that's something I probably should start. start. Uh, talk to me your your philosophies on um, on physical dodging. Something I need to do a better job coaching for sure. Um, I, I, I teach it more to, to separate, like, uh, again, like I think, you know, uh, defensively, I think if when I'm playing defense, I feel more comfortable when I, I'll use the word term sticky coach K uses sticky, like when they're on you, they're on you. And I, and again, like I try not to, you know, have two bulls going against each other because they can always just send someone to slide. I like to engage to disengage and then re and then react to, okay, how are they playing me? You know, like, so if I get into you and I'm going to be physical, I don't want to stay physical for so long where I'm getting off balance. And I'm trying to run through you. I want to get physical just enough to heavy inside, like plant, jump away from you to re-square you up to see what you've done. Yeah. And if you just, and if you just stayed there, now you're giving me what I want. I can go left. I can go right. If I jump away and then you play heavy to my outside shoulder, then I can reattack down where I was going. Or if maybe you play shallow, I could slip back. So I like, I like to get physical to, to really disengage to reattack and, and force that defenseman to try and get sticky again. Because a lot of times they'll kind of just stay on their heels. Um, not a lot of times, but I've, I've noticed that, that that's one mistake. Well, you can get people off balance when you slam into them. And then when you bounce, you know, you've got a great chance with hands free to fake, to shake, yeah. hesitate, and then to carry and then re-engage. You know, and you, you can just sort of start manipulating that guy. It's hard to slide to that, too. Yeah, I mean, I've been watching some Virginia stuff where they use those pads all all, all practice and physical, and I'm like, I need to start doing maybe more of that, you know, and maybe I need to talk to Sean. And, and I, again, it's like coaching. You just got to – what am I not good at coaching and how can I get better at it, you know, just like a player. So it's yeah, probably something I need to do a better job of uh, educating myself on. But You know what's interesting? You look at – it's like it's, – it's such a um, – What's the right word? It's it's such a mystery, but it seems like, you know, in and out and all of what you're talking about, and getting rid of the ball and dodging, you know, don't hang on to it too long. But then you watch, you watch certain players at all levels where they actually can post up mm -hmm. and put serious physical, you know, like make you battle with them. And instead of you getting off balance, you're getting them off balance, whether it's PLL watching Cuccinello or Fields or Rambo, or whether you're watching, you know, whether you're watching college lacrosse and you see sometimes middies that just all of a sudden, you know, that, you know, like, um, you know, with a shorty on them and just stick their body in there and sort of a hot, it's almost like a high Island where it's all of a sudden you sit there and it's, you know, with a guy right on you, you're, you're one false lean away from turning a corner, right? Because they're, they're on you. And it's very hard for those adjacents to come to you sometimes. And I, have you thought much about that advantage? Absolutely. Um, as you're talking, I'm just thinking of Holy Cross 2015, 2016. They'd have, like, these big physical midfielders, and they would, like, we'd call it, like, walk dodging. They'd kind of, like, walk into you. 
And if you tried to get physical with them right away, they would kind of just like spin off you because they had space. And then you have to slide to someone that you really don't feel like you need to slide to. Mm -hmm. But if you engage late, then all of a sudden everything you just described, they're just so big and, and physical. They're all of a sudden at five with their hands free getting good high quality looks. Yeah. I, I also, like, so I thought of them. And then I also thought of, well, the distinction between just highly elite players. And if you have someone that's highly elite, like a, like a Spencer, you're going to let the ball stay in his stick a lot longer because yeah. there's a higher likelihood that he's going to do something that's positive with it. Right. Uh, you got, you know, six kind of, I don't want to use the word pawns, but you got six guys that are all kind of so what I described. And then it becomes a little bit more of a pinball lacrosse where you want to keep that thing going and, and really take advantage to make the defense like play faster than the defense. Um, so, yeah, just like kind of philosophically, maybe mixes a little bit based on personnel and what you can sure. and can't. I'm not a hater of any of it, though. Right. I mean, uh, Pat Spencer obviously is an elite player, generational talent, and he was able to stick his body in there and look over your head and go in and out. He still used his in and outs. Sometimes his hands were most free when he was engaged as opposed to creating separation, which is a really kind of counterintuitive thought. Um, mm -hmm. But when you're, in, when you're right in on somebody, especially if they're, you're a righty and they're a righty and they're cross-checking you, there's, there's really nobody on your hands at that point in time. Yep. Agreed. Totally. <laughs> Interesting. Um, talk to us about uh, recruiting um, as a last topic. How's it going? Um, what, uh, what are you looking for? Where are you at in your recruiting? Um, focused on 21s, I would imagine. Just finished the uh, 20s, to be honest with you. And we, we obviously are the 21s. And, and again, I have mixed reviews on the recruiting rules. I don't know, maybe I'm unpopular here. Um, I, I just didn't see what was incredibly wrong with kids making decisions a year earlier to go to Duke or Harvard or Notre Dame. I mean, you're not saying you're making a bad mistake. Um, you know, again, but I don't, I have kids that are nine, eight and five right now. So I didn't live in that world. So it's hard for me to truly emphasize you, you probably could live in it a little bit better and t tell me I, I'm wrong, but you I've know, seen it from both sides, the early recruiting, the late recruiting, and then the new rules too. Yeah. I mean like, so but what I can tell you it's done for more of like the mid major is it's created more work uh, for sure. Because you get all these kids and, and they have aspirations, maybe Big Ten, ACC, Ivy. They want to wait and see what their grades are, and that, that's totally fine. So you're kind of playing the waiting game a lot. And I think when I talk to coaches, I get a similar response, whereas earlier on, like those kids would be off the table a lot earlier. And then you kind of knew who you were looking for. And, again, it's not about finishing your class. You want to get the right kid all the time. But what's happened is, for me at least, like I'm spending the last two weeks of August giving a visit or two every day. Because yeah. kids are like, I had aspirations of maybe going to this school academically. And they don't think they can get me in. So now I got to keep on looking at plan B and C. And right. so it, it's created more work. And, and again, I'm not complaining they have to work, but it's just a different recruiting environment of truly yeah. recruiting two classes and trying to give equal attention to two classes where it used to be a, like you could all key in on that one class at the same time, kind of gets finished, and then we all move on to the next class. Yeah, it was nice when, like, all the big dogs took all the players that they wanted, and then everybody else just battles at a, at a sort of a reasonable rate. But the good news is, though, is there's so many players. Yeah, that is the counter. I mean, that's what I'll say to any kid that comes and visits a lot. I'll say, you know, talent's becoming the known commodity. You, like, when, I, when we played, it kind of wasn't. You know, you look at seven schools maybe you could go to talent's all over the place now it's like what culturally are you going to do with that talent that's going to separate you you know so yeah. yeah there are a lot of good great players out there though that's for sure Amazing. yeah there's tons of them more than ever and honestly i don't think you know i don't think uh one summer of evaluating the 21s was enough there's too many events and too many players and you really need to see if you can't watch a half a game a couple times of a 
team and know the depth of their talent if they've got, you know, five to 15 division one prospects on the team, you're never going to really know it. And so, you know, that's uh, it's just, there's so many players and so many events. And so you're, you're, you're speaking my language, like earlier, like, again, like I felt like we changed this recruiting legislation because 1% of the recruits were making a decision early. Like, well, if you're not one of that 1%, are you really just jealous that you're not that 1%? You know what I'm saying? Like, what do you care? The kid's going to Duke. The kid's going to Notre Dame. The kid's going to Ivy League school. You know, it's like, so why did we really change it? Did we change it for ego or did we change it because it's actually a lot better? You know, I mean, at some point they're going to have to make a decision. And, and not to get into a whole other topic, a lot of these kids are older anyway. You know, they're mature. Yeah. You know, yeah. we got 18-year-old we got juniors in high school right now. I mean, they're 18. They can go in the Army. You know, I mean, so they're mature enough. They have to be, you know. So I just felt like. Again, I hope I don't get criticized for saying that, but I'm saying what I feel. Like, I lived on both sides of it where I was recruiting at a school that finished up the recruiting a little early because maybe, you know, higher, a little bit higher profile, that's the way it is, like at Maryland. And I didn't see those kids incredibly upset about it. You know, retention was retention was probably about the same way it was before. I think retention's off now because of the portal. So Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's a, it's, there's no question that the – I used to wonder why, you know, certain coaches would get all up in arms about early recruiting when it was to their advantage to have early recruiting. Um, <laughs> and for the big dogs, it's definitely to their advantage not to have early recruiting because they can wait longer and make their decisions when they want and poach anyways. They're going to poach, you know, anyway. They're gonna poach anyways. You just they're going to poach anyways, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the point you made about being older with, with you know, being an 18-year-old junior and a 19-year-old senior, um, it's really interesting because there's a lot of people like outside of our sport that are just like, this is like absurd. Why would coaches, you know, be fooled by this? And, and I'm not sure. Number one, there's, it's happening so much that I'm not even sure that it's like, I mean, it's it, honestly, it, it's almost like if you're, if you're not a repeat, you're just two years younger instead of like, or, or you're younger. Whereas if you, if you did repeat, you probably are 40 or 50% of the kids are probably your age anyways. Um, but do you think it's a recruiting disadvantage to evaluate um, a kid who's not a, a, you know, an 18 year old junior versus a 17 year old junior? No, I mean, again, at the end of the day, I'll look back on my own experience. I was a better player at 23 in the MLL than I was as 21 as a senior in, in college. Yeah. So I just feel like, again, you're going to be better and that, and you're based and you're graded based upon the grade that you're in, whether you're, right. whether you're, 18 going against a 16 year old or a 16 year old going against an 18 year old. It's just not fair. I wouldn't say it's not fair. It's just reality for that 16 year old. And then it aids to your point. Well, everyone should hold everyone back because you're going to be playing with an unlevel field. And it's, it's kind of scary. I feel like maybe soccer has got it right. I mean, like doesn't soccer only do it based on grad year. Like you have like a card, like you're not allowed to play unless everyone's born in that same year. I don't know. I don't know if we can do that anymore, but to your, I used to like be anti it because I was like, that's not fair, and that shouldn't be tolerated. But at the end of the day, those kids are better. They're better. They're better probably because they're older, but they're still better. And right. we, we got to recruit the best kid. So. And now, it's, it's a, you might get a false positive more with an eighth grader than with an 11th grader. True. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and, and also, um, I, I guess, would you rather have a 20-year-old freshman or a 19-year-old freshman? Uh, two years ago, I would have said 19. Now I'd say 20. Yeah, I'd rather 20. More mature, more physically developed. You know, it's just, 
again, do I do I think it's fair that a 19-year-old has to go against a 20-year-old? No, but I, I, I need to take the best players in that class. And the best player is 20 years old, and then it's 20 years old. You know, and so, again, I've turned a page on that, looking at what some other teams do, and it's just the way it is. So either get with them and, and adapt or, you know, be bitter and not probably be as successful. So I'm going to opt not to be bitter <laughs> and just the rules are changing a little bit, and i got to change with them. Do you see um, junior colleges becoming more um, of a factor as there's more and more and more kids? With the late recruiting, I feel like there's going to be more kids slipping through the cracks simply because you don't have a big enough sample size to evaluate. And all of a sudden they're like, you know, I want to play. Um, do you see that as, you know, are you paying attention to the junior college ranks at all? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm in an area where, you know, we got Howard, Hartford, um, Essex, Anne Arundel County. Like, so, I mean, we do that. I mean, Nassau coach texted me two days ago. So, I mean, I look, but I also look at it through a lens of a kid not wanting to use a year of eligibility and maybe has the means to go to a New England prep school or a prep school somewhere and get an extra year that way. And maybe that shift might turn. Because when you go to the, the JUCO route, now you're, you're, now you're limiting how much you can play at the school you ultimately go to. Um, if you go the prep route, and that's some good in, that's some good foresight. Like that probably will be a trend that starts to go forward even more so. You know, I didn't get a good look, or I'm a younger for my age, and I can't do eighth grade over again because I'm already in high school. So I, I, I got to go the other route uh, and do you know thirteenth grade. Are you done with twenties? Yeah, you're never done. Never done. But uh, I, I I mean, right now we we. Um, we're pretty, you know, I mean, if we, I know what you mean, but I mean, the point is, is that never done, but yeah. people are like, I'm done, I'm done. I, I always say this to people, like it happened to, when I was coaching high school lacrosse, there'd be these kids that would be like really late bloomers. And I, and, and in the fall, I was like, don't even bother, you know, the fall as a senior, you're really, there's not going to be much out there for you, but come springtime, come April, all of a yeah. sudden everyone's looking for players again that are like seniors because, you know, there's so much attrition, right? Somebody, didn't pan out. Somebody's injured for, for life. They, they fail out, whatever it is. It happens. You're right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you're never done, but if I didn't get another kid, the class would be fine. You're good. You're feeling good about it. It's yeah. awesome. Well, Ryan, well, thank you so much for taking the time um, and sharing all of these experiences and insights and philosophies um, on this podcast. I, I really appreciate it, and I wish you the best of luck. Thanks, Jamie. Always. I'll, I'll talk to you soon, I'm sure. All right, man. Take care. Bye. The Lacrosse Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 10-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. To learn more or start getting better today, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash academy.